part of worship is being still before the Lord, recognizing who He is. In fact, the psalmist uh, tells us, be still and know that I am God, the Lord says to us. Let me invite you to open up God's Word with me this morning to the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. As we continue our our journey in this book, we're in Exodus chapter 4 today, and you can find uh, our text for today on page 47 of the Pew Bible. And as always, would encourage you to open a copy of God's Word and follow along as we hear from Him. You know, we gather uh, week after week, we gather on Sunday uh, mornings as a family of believers, as a church body, uh, we gather to worship the Lord. In fact, our mission statement as a church begins this way. It says that Meadowbrook Baptist Church exists to glorify God by knowing God through biblical worship. So what then does it mean to worship? Why do we worship? Do you worship? Do you worship the Lord, the God who has made himself known to us through his word? And if you worship this Lord, what stirs you, what moves you to worship the Lord? In our text for today, the people of God are moved to worship the Lord. They hear from the Lord, they hear of the Lord, they're reminded of who He is and His plans for them, and they're moved to worship. And so my desire for us uh, in our time uh, in the text this morning is to move us uh, to a posture of worship. We've been worshiping this morning, but we continue to worship even now. And my hope is that over the next several minutes, certainly today, but not just today, every time we open up the Word of God and hear it read and proclaimed or taught, that this is not simply something we do out of routine, that this is not something that we check off a list, that we don't check out, that uh, we're free from uh, distractions about yesterday's football game or uh, lunch today, and that we would truly expect as we open the Word of God to hear from the Lord. So would you look at God's word with me this morning as we long to hear from him, as we ask him to speak to us. And if you're visiting with us, we've been journeying through the book of Exodus. And so we've gone to Egypt to witness what God is doing among his people. In Exodus chapter 1, we saw that the generation of Joseph and his brothers passed on. In fact, several generations died, and uh, the Israelites multiplied greatly. They received favor and blessing from God in this way. They became a numerous people, well over a million people in that land, so much so that the king of the land, the Pharaoh, was threatened by uh, their great growth. Uh, Pharaoh was fearful that the Israelites would join with his enemies and that they would oppose him. And so he begins to oppress the Israelites, the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And we've seen how one particular baby boy was spared in a supernatural way, in a way that can only be attributed to God and his sovereign plan and choice and deliverance of Moses. Moses, a baby boy born during a time when the Pharaoh has uh, issued a decree that all Hebrew baby boys are thrown in the Nile. In other words, they're, they're killed. But Moses is spared. He's spared in a miraculous way. He's invited into uh, the king's family. He's, he's raised by the princess in the land. He's raised by Pharaoh's daughter. But he grows up and he becomes a man. And on a whim, he, he sees injustice and he responds with retaliation. He murders an Egyptian slave driver. And as a result, he must flee from Egypt for Pharaoh wants to take Moses' life. And so Moses flees into the desert, into Midian, and there he encounters a group of, of young ladies, a group of sisters, and he uh, comes to their rescue. They're given favor by their father, or he's given favor by their father, Jethro or Ruel, a priest in Midian. And so 
Jethro takes Moses in, provides for him, gives him his daughter in marriage. Moses is blessed with a son. And sometime later, Moses is out shepherding his sheep. And the Lord appears to Moses through a burning bush and tells Moses that he remembers his people enslaved in Egypt and he is going to deliver them. And he's calling Moses to go and be his human agent, his instrument to deliver his people. Moses responds with great fear. With great hesitation, who who am I, Lord, that I should go? And God says, it doesn't matter who you are, I'm going with you. And Moses says, well, who are you? Who should I tell them has sent me? And God says to Moses, he says, I am who I am. Tell them, I am has sent me to you. And after a time of convincing Moses that Moses is not going to run from the call of God, Moses finally agrees to go. He's given some signs that he is to perform to convince those on the receiving end, the listening end, that, that God is who he says he is and that God has indeed appeared to Moses. And this is where we pick up the story today in Exodus chapter 4, beginning in verse 18. So if you find your place there in God's word, let me invite you to join me standing, whether in body or in spirit, for the reading of God's holy word. Exodus chapter 4, beginning in verse 18, the Bible reads this way. It says, then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, go, and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. Verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go. So I will kill your firstborn son. Verse 24, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses And was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife. Cut off her son's foreskin. And touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. She said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time she said bridegroom of blood. Referring to circumcision. Verse 27. The Lord said to Aaron. Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God. And kissed him. Then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say and also about all the signs he had commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshiped. Would you bow with me in prayer? And Father, we do thank you for your word today. Lord, we are hungry to hear from you. We pray that you would speak to us. The presence and power of your spirit through the preaching of your word. Speak to us, instruct us, correct us, rebuke us, encourage us that we might faithfully follow after Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Church, I... I think you know this. I hope you know this. God has a plan. God is a God who is sovereign. He has a plan. He is fulfilling his plan. He's always had a plan. His plan is to do what he has promised. His plan here is to do what he has promised Abraham. 
because, because God is faithful to his promises. And so God is going to deliver the Israelites from slavery and he's going to give them a good and a spacious land and he's going to be their God and through him, through them, he's going to invite others, surrounding peoples and nations to know and to worship him. And according to the word, according to the story, God says that he is going to do this uh, through an unlikely man. He's going to do this through Moses. An Israelite raised by an Egyptian princess. But a man who committed murder and became a fugitive. Now living in the desert, now shepherding sheep, scared of the king and scared of public speaking. Yet God says this is the one. God says this is the one he's going to use and he is the Lord. God has made up his mind. His will is going to be accomplished. He's not a bulldog with Moses, but he's going to convince Moses. He is patient with Moses. God is extremely patient. He's winning Moses' heart. And in the process, he's working on other hearts as well. Here's the truth that we see. God rules every heart by his sovereign will. God rules every heart By his sovereign will. Did you know that God is working on your heart? Did you know that God is interested not only in the external affairs of your life, but he is interested also in the internal interests of your heart? God's word and his character either harden hearts in opposition to him, or his character and word soften and woo hearts in service to him. And not only is God wooing and working in Moses' heart in this particular story, but notice how all the other characters in this story respond to God as well. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law and his employer, the patriarch of the family that he's moved in among, that he has become a part of, Jethro lets Moses go back to Egypt. And what an interesting exchange here. Moses goes to Jethro. Jethro, uh, let me go back to my people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. He doesn't quite tell the full story, but nevertheless, Jethro says, go. Moses, you're free to go. Go back. I wish you well. And Zipporah, Moses' wife, steps in and saves Moses from God's wrath. We'll talk more about that in A few moments. And then Aaron, Moses' brother, obeys the Lord. Here's the call of the Lord. Obeys the Lord. Meets Moses. And then agrees to go with Moses. And then the chapter ends. The Israelites listen to Moses. They listen to Aaron. They see the signs. And they believe just as God had said they would. But you know, perhaps the most obvious of all is God's work in Pharaoh's heart. God says, verse 21, I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. You see, like the miracles of Jesus in the New Testament, some believed as a result of Moses' signs and some got angry. Pharaoh would get angry. His heart would become hard. In fact, this is a theme throughout the book of Exodus. This is the first time that Pharaoh's hard heart is mentioned, mentioned some 20 times in the story. And sometimes the story says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And then other times, like this time, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart for his own purposes. Was Pharaoh responsible for his hard and disobedient heart? Yes. And did God harden Pharaoh's heart in accordance with his divine plan to deliver Israel? Yes. You see, there's a tension here at play between divine sovereignty. And by the way, this is not the only place that we see it in God's word, but certainly a place. There's a tension between divine sovereignty, the the power, the control 
of, of God himself as the one who rules and reigns on high, divine sovereignty, sovereignty and human responsibility, which in the words of Philip Ryken is not a puzzle to be solved, but a mystery to be adored. You see, God is sovereign. He is ruling every heart by His sovereign will. And yet we are fully accountable and responsible for how we respond to Him. Now, if you're anything like me, this does not sit all that well with you. You want to be able to explain God concisely and clearly with full and complete understanding and no loose ends. But that's not God. Friends, that is not God. God does make himself known. But he is mysterious and he is majestic. He is above us. And it's part of his mysterious and majestic nature that makes him God and worthy of our worship. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. But we know according to his word that he rules every heart by his sovereign will. And secondly, we see here that God loves us as a good father loves his only son. God is a God who loves us. As a good father loves his only son. God says to Moses in verse 22. He says, Moses, go say to Pharaoh. This is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go. So he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go. So I will kill your firstborn son. You see, for the people of God, God's sovereignty is a good thing because His sovereignty includes our sonship. We all know there's a special relationship between parents and children. A relationship of commitment, a relationship of love, a relationship of devotion and concern. You, you care for your kids. And this is part of God's design, I think, that God gives this to us because we all know kids push our buttons. They test us. Parents do too at times, right? But there's a commitment, there's a a, a relational bond and commitment of love to each other and wish for for well-being toward one another. But I think there's also a great commitment, an equally special commitment, and perhaps a a more significant commitment in a different way between adopted uh, parents and adopted children. And what a special relationship that is, a, a choosing, often a mutual choosing and recognition that you are part of our family. We're taking you in. I choose you. Give you my name. You represent me and I represent you. And likewise, in essence, God is saying here through Moses to Pharaoh, these are my people. I chose them. I chose them to be mine. I love them. I'm giving them my name. I'm coming to rescue them so that we can be together as a family. Listen to what one author says about this he says to pharaoh the hebrews were lowly slaves but to god they were beloved sons he goes on he writes god wanted the worship of his firstborn son he says this is the grand theme of the exodus god saving sons from slavery so they could serve him listen to what one dutch bible scholar writes about god's words here for pharaoh he says in the dispute About the question to whom Israel belongs and who is her legitimate ruler, Pharaoh or Yahweh, Yahweh will at last show that he has intimate emotional ties with Israel. Pharaoh had better know that to Yahweh, Israel is not just his own people. They are also dear to him. This idea of sonship is a theme of the Old Testament. 
we see it throughout the Old Testament. Often God refers to the Israelites. He refers to Israel as a son, his firstborn son. And even the king of, of Israel has this special relationship. David and others have this relationship often, uh, often implied that they are the son of God. Recognize his son. We see this, for example, in Psalm 2 where the, the, the king, the king is representative of God, is uh, a, a son of God. But God's son, Israel, proves to be a disappointment, never living up to that title. But God knew this, and he loved them anyway, knowing that one day he would send his only son, the one and only perfect son, to be their savior and our savior. In fact, Matthew makes this connection for us when he tells about Jesus' birth and his growth. He wants us to think of God's words regarding Israel his son in Egypt. You likely remember that story. Remember that Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Mary and Joseph travel to Bethlehem. Jesus is born there. They live there for some time after he's born, before they return to Nazareth. And what happens? Uh, The Lord appears to Joseph in a dream and he warns them to flee, to go to Egypt because Herod is going to try to kill baby Jesus. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 14, we read, So Joseph got up. He took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. That's a quotation of the prophet Hosea, Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. And in context, God is speaking through Hosea saying, I delivered my son Israel from Egypt. Out of Egypt I called my son Israel. And now through Matthew's gospel, out of Egypt I called my son Israel. Jesus. And in case we miss it, Matthew reminds us again that Jesus fulfilled God's promise of sonship. The next chapter, Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, the Lord, when the Lord was baptized, a voice from heaven spoke and said, this is my son. This is my son whom I love. And with him I am well pleased. But it gets even better, church, for God didn't just love Israel as a good father loves his only son. And he doesn't just love Jesus as a good father loves his only son. But God loves us, believers, Christians, followers of Christ, as a good father loves his son. For Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. What a position. Because of Christ and what he has done on the cross of Calvary, Because of salvation by God's grace through faith applied to the lives of those who turn and trust in Him. You become, we become children of God, sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Given sonship by our Heavenly Father. A status that can never ever be taken away from those who turn to Jesus in faith. You see, our our story in Exodus teaches what kind of father He is. And it teaches us what He expects of us as children. As believers, we are His children. And God requires Faith and obedience from us. He requires faith and obedience from us, not in an effort to earn salvation. We, we know that, that salvation is simply by God's grace. It's not something we could earn or deserve. But he invites us into the relationship. He calls us his own. And he expects us to live out our position before him. To walk in faith and obedience to him. Now, this is where this passage gets a little fuzzy. Let's be honest, a little yucky. Uh, more than a little strange. You, you ever been watching a movie and you're not really sure if you're into this movie? You're wondering if, if, if you should keep watching the movie and all of a sudden something happens. You're like, I'm done. Give it up. I'm 
putting that aside, turning that off. I'm going to go do something else. Uh, I'll be honest, zombie movies uh, are often kind of like that for me. Uh, I know I, I, I'm, I'm losing points with some of you because some of you like uh, that sort of thing. But um, uh, Exodus chapter 4, verses 24 through 26 are sort of my zombie moment of this text. I mean, what's going on here? God meets Moses along the, the way at a lodging point and he says he's going to kill him. God, what are you doing? This is your guy. You chose him. And now you're going to get rid of him. Where does that come from? And then it goes on, the story goes on, this whole graphic episode where Zipporah, Moses' wife, intervenes by taking out a knife and she circumcises their son before touching Moses with the flesh and the bloodshed in the process. This is strange. But I think there are a couple key... This is the Word of God, though. What? Right? There are some key truths. Something here that the Lord has for us. And I think there are a couple key truths going on here. And to understand the first of these, we need to go back. To go back to Genesis chapter 17 where God recounts his covenant with Abraham. Remember that God makes a covenant with Abraham. He, he calls Abraham to go to the land that he's going to show him. And he makes this promise to Abraham that I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to bless your descendants. I'm going to give you a land. And through your offspring, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. He enters into this relationship with Abraham. And there are terms or conditions for the relationship. It's not simply a, a consumer contract. It's, it's a relational bond. God says, I'm going to be faithful to you. I'm going to be your God. And this is what you are to do. This is how you are to relate to me. God says to Abraham, Genesis chapter 17, verse 9. He says, as for you, you must keep my covenant. You and your descendants after you for the generations to come. He says, this is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. It says you are to undergo circumcision and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And so in context, circumcision becomes the sign of being in covenant relationship with Yahweh. And the sign of the covenant served as a reminder, so to speak, as if God needs a reminder, a reminder to God of the promises that he has made to his people and as a reminder to his people that they are called to live in faithfulness to him. And now we fast forward to our text today. We fast forward to Exodus and Remember Exodus chapter 2, the end of that chapter, we read something like God heard his people crying out for help. He saw them in their misery. Uh, He remembered his covenant with them and he was concerned about them. And so God has remembered his covenant and now he's acting on the basis of his promise. He's called Moses to be his human instrument to deliver Abraham's offspring and to reestablish this covenant, so to speak. And yet Moses is not abiding by the covenant. In essence, God is saying, I am faithful to you. Now be faithful to me. Remember the terms of the covenant. You're my representative. Now we fast forward to today. We fast forward to the New Testament. We fast forward to the coming of Christ. And as followers of Jesus, circumcision is no longer the sign of our covenant with God. But baptism is. Baptism is a sign of our covenant with the Most High God. An outward physical sign of an inward reality. And that inward reality is a covenant relationship with God through Christ. And we've been privileged this morning to witness that sign. A reminder of God's saving grace. Of His commitment to us. Of His rescuing love for us. And church, let me just say this. This is why baptism matters. Certainly churches disagree on baptism. It's 
mode, more, mode of, of baptism is, 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 not a, uh, is not a primary issue. It's a conviction for us and, and for other denominations as well. But baptism does matter. There's no way that we can deny that. This is why to profess in Jesus, uh, faith in Jesus and fail to be baptized is disobedience. Baptism matters. It doesn't save, but it's a sign for the saved, a matter of obedience. God requires faith and obedience from us. And the next truth I think we see from this strange encounter is that God provides a substitute for us. He provides a substitute to appease His wrath against us. God provides a substitute to appease His wrath against us. This second part of this strange circumcision encounter is that is the significance of, of bloodshed. And the author says, the author of Hebrews reminds us, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, that the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And he says, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. You see, the truth is that God never meant to kill Moses. Never intended to take Moses' life here, he was teaching Moses and testing Moses. He was teaching Moses the requirements of salvation. As a sinner, Moses was under the wrath of God like each of us are in our own sin. But God's wrath was turned aside. It was appeased by the shed blood of a substitute. Now, doesn't that sound familiar? The story of God's word unfolds. We read through the law that the delivered Israelites were required to give sacrifices of atonement to regulate this ongoing relationship between a holy God and a sinful people. But only for a time, only until the final and perfect sacrifice of atonement was provided on the cross of Calvary in our place. Romans chapter 3, verse 25, Paul writes, he says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement to be, uh, through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. God provides a substitute to appease His wrath against us. God requires faith and obedience from us. God loves us as a good father loves His only son. God rules every heart by His sovereign will. And finally, we see here that God is faithful to His people and His promises. This is a story of God's faithfulness. Like the Bible is a story of God's faithfulness. God is faithful to His people and His promises. Don't miss the Lord's faithfulness here. God goes with Moses. He goes with Moses, signified by the staff of God in his hand, verse 20. Moses' staff is is no longer the shepherd's staff. It is now God's staff. It signifies the presence of God going with Moses. And Aaron accompanies Moses as a speaker. And the Israelite elders believe his message just as the Lord had said that they would. In other words, all that worry for nothing... All that debate with God for nothing. It happened just the way God had promised. No space. This is significant. No space devoted in this story to any difficult discussion. Any hard conversation with the elders of Israel. As if the word of God is saying to Moses and saying to us, listen to me, trust me, I am faithful always. And then they worship the Lord. They respond in worship. Overcome by the Lord's Interest in them. Friend, are you overcome by the Lord's interest in you? Do you know that He's interested in you? Do you know know that He 
He loves you, that He pursues you, that He calls you, that He invites you to be a child of His, to be saved by His grace. They're relieved to hear that God's eyes are upon them, that He is concerned about them, that He has not forgotten them. The word translated concerned about them in verse 31 means that He pays attention to them. That he knows their situation and he does something about it. He comes to visit them. In fact, it's closely related to our word for pastor. It means to get involved. It means to shepherd. Throughout redemptive history, God is the God who pays attention to his people. He looks after his people. He gets involved in the situation and he rescues them. And so here they are stirred by the thought of God's compassion. They respond with worship. They worship the Lord. And this is the right response. Friends, this is the way that it ought to happen. Divine compassion ought to stir us to worship the Lord. Divine compassion, the compassion of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the patience of God with us ought to move us. It ought to stir us to worship the Lord. Have you encountered the compassion of God? Did you know that the same Lord who got involved in Egypt and rescued his people has come again to get involved in your situation and to rescue you? Yahweh has come. He is the Lord and he is Savior. He has come in Jesus of Nazareth. He has come to save. He has come to save in Jesus, the true son of God and the promised offspring of Abraham. Friend, as you hear and read the story of the Exodus, see the Lord who saves. See the Lord who saves. As you read this story and every story, every sub-story within the greater story of God's Word, notice what the Word is teaching us about who God is, about His character, about how He operates. He is a God who saves. Friend, He is a God who rescues. See the Lord who saves. The Lord Most High, the Great I Am, the King of Kings, and our Everlasting Father is one who saves? Friend, the Lord saves. Has He saved you? Has He saved you? Are you saved? Are you forgiven? Will you be spared the deserved judgment of God because the Son of God, the perfect Son of God, has taken it in your place and given you His righteousness before the Father? Have you received His, His, His compassion? You can. Friend, you can today. You can receive the patience, the compassion, the kindness of God expressed through the gospel of Jesus today. You can be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Most High God. Forgiven, restored, cleansed. For the same God stands ready and willing to save whosoever will trust in Him. So friend, as we read this story, As you open the word, see the Lord who saves and then respond to the Lord who saves. Respond to him by worshiping him for he is worthy of worship. Will you bow down and worship him? Will you worship him? The truth is that this God who saves is the only one worthy of worship. He is the God who is high and exalted. He is the God seated on the throne. He is the eternal and almighty maker of heaven and earth. 
He is the, the God who holds all things in his hands. He is the God who has made promises and executing those promises according to his perfect will. He is the God who is working things for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And he is a God who loves you with an unfailing love. He is a God who longs to rescue you and me, to redeem us, not because we are worthy, but because he is gracious. He is worthy of our worship. When you encounter this one, when I encounter this one, when the world encounters the compassion of the Most High God, we ought to be stirred to worship Him. Divine compassion ought to stir us to worship God. Will you worship Him now? Can we express our worship to Him? Can we sing His praises and express our faith? Can we devote our lives to Him? And in just a moment, we're going to do that. We're going to stand in just a few moments. We're going to Sing, we're going to respond, we're going to lift our voice in song, we're going to reflect on who He is, express our faith in Him, our longing for Him. And this is a time for every one of us to respond with worship. I don't know what that may look like for you. Perhaps you're not a follower of Christ. Maybe you've never turned and trusted in Him. Maybe you've never worshipped Him. Worship Him today. Repent, turn and trust Him. Receive His forgiveness Express your faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord, as the perfect Son and Savior, the one you want to follow. Worship Him in your heart and your life today. Cry out to Him to save you. Perhaps you do know Him. Perhaps you've been walking with Him, but you've drifted from Him. Maybe your life doesn't look so much like worship today as it once did. We'll confess that sin to God, knowing that He, that he is faithful. He's just. He promises to forgive you, to welcome you into his presence, to receive your worship and to bless you. Whatever that looks like for you, worship the Lord today. Bow before him. Worship him in your heart. Worship him in your mind. Worship him with your life. Would you bow with me? Father in heaven, may may we exalt you. Lord, we believe the truths of your word. We believe you even when we don't fully understand you. We believe that you are God, that you are the Lord most high, that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords, and that you are also a good shepherd to us. One who loves us, one who rescues us, one who redeems us, one who invites us to know and to enjoy you, who invites us into your family. Father, may we be overcome with your goodness today. Lord, as we respond corporately through song, as we respond individually, and as we we walk throughout this day, may we be aware of your presence and may we be overcome and overjoyed by your mercy. Lord, don't let us forget it. May your spirit press your gospel of grace upon our minds. Move among us, move in us, shape us, change us for your glory and your purposes. May our lives be lives that that adore you, for you are, you are worthy of our worship. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.